You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ in the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso, Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio on KGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP, in Bellingham, Washington on KZAX 94.9 FM, in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Network, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today you've got me, Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show at nicolesandler.com. Thrilled to be back in again for Brad and Desi. And boy, do we have a busy show for you today with journalist and government-dubbed FOIA terrorist Jason Leopold and author, activist, and organizer Jane McAlevey all coming up. But I want to start with a few words from President Obama, who on Friday held his final press conference of the year, likely his final one as president. Of course, he was asked about the Russians' interference with the elections. I'm going to let all the political pundits in this town uh, have a long discussion about uh, what happened in the election. Now, it was a fascinating election, so I, I, you know, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of books written about it. I've said what I think is important for the Democratic Party going forward, rather than try to parse uh, every aspect of the election. Uh, and I've, I've said before, I couldn't be prouder of Secretary Clinton, her outstanding service. I think she's worked tirelessly on behalf of the American people, and I don't think she was treated fairly during the election. I think the coverage of her and the issues uh, was troubling. But having said that, uh, what I've been most focused on appropriate for the fact that I'm not going to be a politician in about, was it 32 days? 31? 34? <laughs> uh, what I've said is, is, is that I could maybe give some counsel advice to the Democratic Party, and I think that the thing we have to spend the most time on, because it's the, the thing we have the most control over, is how do we make sure that we are showing up in places where I think democratic policies are needed, where they are helping, where they are making a difference, but where people feel as if they're not being heard, and where Democrats are characterized as coastal, liberal, latte-sipping, 
politically correct, uh, out-of-touch folks. We have to be in those communities. And I've seen that when we are in those communities, it makes a difference. That's how I became president. Of course, President Obama had a few words of warning for Vladimir Putin, too. With respect to response, my principal goal leading up to the election was making sure that the election itself went off without a hitch, that it was not tarnished, and that it did not feed any sense in the public that somehow tampering had taken place with the actual process of voting. And we accomplished that. That does not mean that we are not going to respond. It simply meant that we had a set of priorities leading up to the election that were of the utmost importance. Our goal continues to be to send a clear message to Russia or others not to do this to us because we can do stuff to you. Uh, But it is also important for us to do that in a thoughtful, methodical way. Some of it we do publicly. Some of it uh, we will do in a way that they know, but not everybody will. Uh, And I know that there have been folks out there who suggest somehow that if we went out there and made big announcements and thumped uh, our chests uh, about a bunch of stuff, that somehow that would potentially spook the Russians. But keep in mind that we already have enormous numbers of sanctions against the Russians. The relationship between us and Russia has deteriorated, uh, sadly, significantly over the last several years. And so how we approach uh, an appropriate response that uh, increases costs for them for behavior like this in the future, but does not create problems for us, uh, is something that's worth taking the time to think through and figure out. And that's exactly what we've done. So. At a point, we've taken certain actions that we can divulge publicly. We will do so. There are times where the message will go, will be directly received by the Russians and not publicized. And I should point out, by the way, part of why uh, the Russians have been effective on this is because they don't go around announcing what they're doing. We can do stuff to you? He really said that? All right. Well, this seems like a good time for a break. So we'll take one and return with Jane McAlevey next. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting on the broadcast. I read the news today. Oh boy. It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. Donald Trump is still giving America the bird, the little blue one. While the rest of the country is grappling with the consequences of this election and the fact that, according to the CIA, 16 other national security entities and the White House, Russia was attempting to interfere in the 2016 elections, including by hacking the computers of the DNC and other political organizations. Now, our president-elect is claiming ignorance and blaming the Obama administration for not acting sooner. But that formal statement from the administration and intelligence community came on Friday, October 7th, a full month before Election Day. Last Friday, they issued another report saying that it was all done under the direct guidance of Vladimir Putin, prompting Trump and his little fingers to tweet, If Russia or some other entity was hacking, why did the White House wait so long to act? Why did they only complain after Hillary lost? 
Greg Sargent at the Washington Post observed that, quote, it represents an effort by Trump, one that's going to continue to construct an alternative narrative to replace the increasingly substantiated one in which Russia may have, in fact, tried to interfere in our election to help him, which would obviously carry enormous significance on many levels. I know how to win. Now, if you've been paying attention, you know that Dump often tweets out vindictive or juvenile nonsense to deflect from a larger story. As even Republicans in Congress are now calling for a full investigation, Trump is once again deflecting, feigning ignorance, and trying to blame the Obama administration for waiting so long to act. But remember that Trump knows full well about their concerns. He knew it back in July when he said, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. No, Trump's alternate narrative won't work. The Russian hacking story was well known over the summer, and the White House did officially announce it, as I just mentioned, on October 7th. But the media never really ran with the story, because a bigger story, complete with a leaked video, surfaced that same day. Watch news, what's a cat? Whoa. Whoa. I did try and f*** her. She was married. <laughs> huge news there. No, no, Nancy. Yeah. No, this was... And I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. <laughs> I took her out furniture. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there. And she was married. And all of a sudden, I see her. She's now got the big phony and everything. She's totally changed her look. She's your girl's hottest. I gotta use some Tic Tacs just in case they start kissing. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. But back to this week, it looks like Trump made a mistake Friday morning, proving his deflection is just another lie. Are we talking about the same cyber attack where it was revealed that the head of the DNC illegally gave Hillary the questions to the debate? Greg Sargent at the Washington Post continues, quote, And so, by referring to this episode, what Trump is inadvertently revealing here is that, yes, the complaint about Russian hacking to hurt Clinton did, in fact, precede the election. And this was widely and publicly known. Of course, there's ample other evidence that Trump is fully aware of this. Oh, yeah. And he's not making many friends in the intel community either, according to former CIA director Michael Hayden. In 48 hours, he said the intelligence community on which he will rely is incompetent, politicized, and frankly, he didn't have a lot of time for them. I don't have to be told, you know, I'm like a smart person. I don't have to be told the same thing and the same words every single day for the next eight years. Could be eight years, but eight years. I don't need now, that. he has no time for those pesky presidential daily briefings. He's too busy to go on his big ego victory tour bragging about... We won in a landslide. This was a landslide victory. This was a landslide. Oh, how many times do we have to say this? No, it wasn't. But remarkably, he does have time to tweet about Vanity Fair magazine. Has anyone looked at the really poor numbers of Vanity Fair magazine? Way down, big trouble, dead. Graydon Carter, no talent, will be out. Where the hell did this come from? They reviewed his restaurant. The headline reads, Trump Grill could be the worst restaurant in America. And now just check out the Yelp reviews for Trump Grill. They're classic. 
We got time for one more. Incoming White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus spoke with right-wing talk radio host Hugh Hewitt about the relationship between Trump and the press. And we learned that there are some changes coming. I think that many things have to change. It's important that we look at all of those traditions, even looking at things like the daily White House briefing from the press secretary. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that things can be done. Point of all of this conversation is that the traditions, I think it's time to revisit a lot of these things that have been done in the White House. And I can assure you that change is going to happen. Change as far as how we're going to approach tax reform, the American worker, how we protect them and business uh, all at the same time while skyrocketing our economy. And that's today's dose of What's News, written and produced by Nicole Sandler at NicoleSandler.com and on the Progressive Voices Network. My apologies to all who are dealing with this winter's horrendous, freezing cold weather. Um, Maybe you'll get a nice scarf for Christmas? Sorry. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. In for Brad and Desi today on the Bradcast. On the line with us is Jane McAlevey. She's a labor and environmental organizer, a postdoctoral fellow in the Labor and Work Life Program at Harvard Law School, wow, and the author of the book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. Jane, what a great time to talk with you because, um, you know, labor issues are are sort of muddled right now. Um, uh, The labor movement has always been associated, I believe, with the Democrats and um, but it seems like a lot of the the working class people, those who would be union members, um, many of them, uh, at least in the heartland of America, voted for Trump. What what's going on? You know, I think we have to look a couple of things. One is, um, I think it's I feel like it's important to say every time we talk about Trump that he didn't actually win the election. Uh, just to ground us out, right? That there are right. still way more popular votes for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm comfortable yet as a veteran of the Florida recount back in 2000. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I'm prepared to ever say that he won the presidency in the way that I've never acknowledged that Bush did until his second term when he actually might have, you know. But right. so at this point. But even um, the second you know, term, even Bush's second term was a little bit know, questionable because of Ohio. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. There were serious questions about the second term. I can say firsthand from being on the ground in Florida during the entire recount, which is sort of the opening to my first book, um, where I told a very firsthand account of what, of really what was going on in Florida, I can say really clearly as someone who was deep in that process that Bush didn't win uh, the White House, and he went on to cause hell for a lot of people, including the working class. So I think we're in a, a sort of terrifying repeat um, in some ways right now with more devastating consequences given the control that's happening at the state house level, which we might come back to. But so let's just go to this sort of opening question, though, about what happened. Were people confused in the field? Obviously, some people who we traditionally think of as people who voted for the Democratic coalition crossed over and voted for uh, Trump and why. And I I have to say, I feel like there's no, there isn't a simple answer, um, but the simple, the simplest variables that go along with why this happened are one, 
you know, the, the conservatives in this country, and I think that's a, that's a team of sort of the populist Christian right that was developed, Phyllis Schlafly, a whole bunch of forces that began developing in the 1970s as, as, a, as a reaction to the power of the working class movement, the unions, and the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movement. Finally, in the early 1970s, Nixon's in, you know, and there's a big meeting that's held in 1973 in Cheyenne, Wyoming, that a young Carl Rove is at, a young Dick Cheney is at. You can almost pinpoint when these guys began the fight back. And they began to realize they didn't have a grassroots base. Um, They'd been relying on sort of top-down strategies. It wasn't working for them. And they had to go out. It's like, it's the base, stupid. They had to go out and actually grow a more strategic working class base. They had to divide and conquer and create division among the working class because a united working class, in fact, doesn't actually put people into power who are really bad for them. What we have now is a really divided working class. We have a, we kind of always have given the history of slavery, but just the simplistic approach to like what just happened, the most clear one for me is that working class folks in this country have had strong unions for decades. And part of what unions do is help people interpret uh, what's going on in the world around them. Unions help, good unions help people connect the dots through really deep political education about what's going on, starting with the Reagan era, but I think it begins in the the mid-70s, again, in this one key meeting in 1973, when they set out to actually break the back of the unions. Um, They they were very patient. Uh, Their side always is. They laid out a long-term plan to undo all the regulation of the civil rights movement, the emerging environmental movement, the women's movement, and particularly the labor movement. They literally said it's going to take us 40 years or so to roll back all these gains that have been made that regulate and, you know, put a stranglehold on the free market, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and they set about doing it. So, you know, it, we just firstly destroyed the pri- so-called private sector uh, unions in this country by deliberately moving their jobs to Mexico, China, Central America, and now all over the world. And in doing that, we were really actually destroying um, the private sector union movement. And so 35 or 40 years later, I have to say it is not that surprising to me that people are a little bit confused about who is to blame uh, for the pain in their lives. And what they've said about doing right now, and we've seen it just in the last few years, it really starts in 2010 with Scott Walker. They sort of realize, in Wisconsin, right, they sort of realize, okay, check that box. We basically have private sector unionization in America down to like 6% on a good day, maybe 5% in more honest numbers. Um, hardly anyone in the private sector in this country is left in a trade union. Now we have to go take out the public sector unions because they're the last source of power for the working class. And that is the path they've been on since 2010. So, you know, again, they've got Fox News. Um, they set out to destroy the one sort of organization that helps people understand and interpret the world, mm-hmm. which is trade unions. And so I find it not so surprising that people are um, a little confused. And then you add to that that Hillary Clinton's campaign, that like her definitive message to the working class was, I'm not Donald Trump, so right. vote for me. Yeah came up pretty empty, right? Like as a strategy, they wrote off key states that Trump went heavily into. They wrote them off early. They had this attitude of sort of punishing states that weren't going with her in the primaries. I mean, it was a, it was, it was an arrogance uh, and a failed campaign strategy. And it was, I mean, I'll just, I'll stop this sort of opening, but it was a, it was an assumption, like there's an assumption that black folks will always vote with the Democrats. There's been this assumption that you take people for granted without actually either taking them seriously, honoring their intelligence, having real conversations with them, and helping them understand 
what's happening in the world. Now, truthfully, when all of Wall Street decided to sign on with Hillary Clinton this summer because they thought Trump was a dangerous whack job, I, I think her campaign was over. When you have the titans of Wall Street behind you and she was running ads and boasting that the Wall Street folks were with her, not against her, why would ordinary workers who have been screwed by Wall Street and trade agreements for 30 to 40 years, and certainly NAFTA, which was brought in by Bill Clinton, why wouldn't they begin to wonder um, which one of these folks should I vote for? Right, especially since the, the the other faction on the left was the Bernie Sanders crowd, who was all about, you know, uh, against Wall Street, against the billionaires, the, the coming or the present oligarchy. I mean, that's his whole message, and that's what so many people responded to. And she tried to glom onto that message a bit, but it was all muddled because she's speaking out of both sides of her mouth. On the one hand, she's yeah. saying, yeah, Wall Street bad. On the other hand, uh, you know, they're all endorsing her. And oh, yeah, there are still those Goldman Sachs speeches. We don't know what she said that for which she was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, that was her issue. The, but the the other part, again, we're speaking with Jane McAlevey, author of No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. We've entered this, what I call, opposite world mentality. We've been there for a while, where nothing makes sense. So you have Donald Trump, a self-professed billionaire, who reportedly uh, exaggerates his wealth. Now we look and at... Who, inha- and inherited it, right? Yes, so and inherited it, although anyway. he claims he's a self-made man because, you know, his father gave him just a small right. million-dollar loan, right. which actually... <laughs> Sorry, in my world, I'll take a million dollars, please. Boy, it would, you know, turn my life around. But it was more than that, because now we've learned that Donald Trump was a a massive failure. And every time he would start a business with daddy's money and it went under, daddy would come to the rescue and bail him out. This happened over and over again. He he puts forth these lies, and he lies with such... um, you know, conviction. Conviction, yeah, that's a perfect word. <laughs> yeah. Or he should be convicted. And people believe it. Up is down, in is out. Nothing makes sense anymore. And now he's loading his cabinet with Goldman Sachs executives. And oh yeah, white men. For the first time, all of the cabinet picks, his major, you know, frontline cabinet picks that have been announced so far, white men. And it hasn't yeah, been this way since like the seventies. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, just watching the picks um, as they unfold uh, for the cabinet positions is kind of terrifying, yes. right? I mean, being in a post-fact world, as mm-hmm. I like to call it, mm-hmm. um, watching the picks uh, is kind of terrifying. And I mean, I want to come back to sort of one of the key subtitles in the book, which was like in the New Gilded Age. Uh-huh. I mean, I I had a sense that we were heading into a New Gilded Age. Yep. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really, I'm really sure of that right now. I mean, if these guys are allowed, I mean, Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State Ugh. is about nothing but recreating a Gilded Age, right? Yes. And we're not too far from it now. We just have great, we have like Madison Avenue marketing, hyper greedy, vicious capitalism in America. And so people are confused uh, about this is the best country in the world. I just returned from a, um, a trip to Australia and I was working with some unions there and doing some work there, and I, I, I'm i just stunned every time I leave the U.S. and I go to a country where people have, you know, basic guaranteed sort of social safety net uh, in their lives that yep. make it so that even when the working class crashes for a minute, they've got something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. When we, we don't have it here, and 
and people are meant to, you know, they they actually message so strongly that this is the best. We're number one. This is the best. Yeah. And I believe me, I, we do have this sort of odd set of freedoms that I wouldn't trade in to live in several countries in the world that we could probably name. But right. but the, but what comes with it is this sort of delusionary power of Madison Avenue to persuade people that ordinary people have it best off here. And it's just a farce. And, you know, Michael Moore's film, right, last film sort of poked fun at that a little bit, right? But, right. But where, it's, what it's what really, was it? Where to invade next? I think it yeah, was called. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, I've, I've been trying to argue with a bunch of friends who actually do work in the media world, like the Hollywood world, that they really, like Aaron Sorkin or someone should really do a show about like a, a Silicon Valley Facebook, you know, kid or something who, who is forced to go live in Europe and they've had one child in America and they have a second child there and they uh. really don't, they don't even want to move to like start telling an actually really good version of a story about how ridiculous the standards are in this country. So, but the question is sort of what do we, what do we do about that? And part of what I'm trying to address in the book is seriously a, a serious discussion about strategy and a serious discussion about power. And as someone who has been organizing in this country for my entire adult life, I feel like we're, 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 we're getting back into this moment where I'm sitting in rooms where people have all these interesting ideas, whether it's about what to do with the electors, the policy, abolish electoral college, um, guaranteed basic income. I mean, yes. there's a whole smattering of ideas that are out there right now. And my question for everyone having those debates is, what is your damn theory of power to win them? Because there isn't a theory of power right now about how we can make any of the good policy ideas we have actually come into being. We just got, you know, romped in the presidential election. Yep at the state level, which is even more of concern for me, um, you know, in the Nation magazine in 2010, right after the 2010 election and early in 2011, before the occupations in Wisconsin began, before we sort of, before Walker actually revealed himself, I wrote two big stories at the end of 2010 and the beginning of 2011 saying that what we have to pay attention to in a really serious way is what's happening in the midterm elections. They are structure tests and we're failing them all. I think people were deluded by the Obama election in 2008 that we actually had some power, that we were on the rebound. And I think people underestimated, as someone who, who runs a lot of elections, that's what I've been doing for most of my life, you know, union campaigns are incredibly hard to win. And I've had the pleasure of being involved in a lot of really serious National Labor Relations Board election wins over the last, whatever, decade and a half. And you think running a city council race is hard, try and win a National Relations Board election, and a bunch mm. of us still do. And we do it because there's a whole approach that we have to to running the campaigns to win them. And when I began to look at 2010, and we had this trifecta red thing happening in a bunch of key states that were previously Democratic strongholds, like Wisconsin, then in Michigan when we blew at the ballot – we blew out the ballot, the right to enshrine, the right to collective bargaining in the state constitution, and then Schneider, right on the heels of losing that in 2012, right? Uh, then in, we in lost Michigan? that. I yeah. mean, to me, there were like so many indications, if you were staring at Michigan and Wisconsin starting in 2010, that we were in deep trouble right? Um, with working class voters in those states that were traditionally stronghold states. And People just wouldn't pay attention. To yeah, and the thing like, is, you know what? We yeah. thought we, you, you get Walker in Wisconsin, and and he's just he is he's eviscerating the unions, he's killing. And and Wisconsin is the home, you know, is is ground zero of our labor movement in this country. And you and I think we maybe had a false sense of 
of safety when it came to certainly labor in Wisconsin. And here, uh, Governor Walker, you know, pulls the legs out from under public unions in Wisconsin. And so we figured, all right, they're going to push back. There's a recall election there, and he wins. That should have... And he he went... yeah, he wins with 38% of the union household vote, wow. by the way. Wow. That should have uh, been a big red flag to the Democrats and to the labor movement, was it? You know, it, 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 it was in momentary ways, but clearly not enough. A, it wasn't to the Democrats. I'm going to turn back mm-hmm. to the unions in a minute. It wasn't to the Democrats, and here's why. And here's what their ridiculous theory, lack of theory of power, has led them to this moment. What they believe, starting with Obama in 2008, were several things. One, they have this rap internally that demography is destiny. Literally, those are the words, demography is destiny. So we can write off trade unions. We don't have to worry about the white working class vote. And by the way, the working class in this country is not mostly white, just to be clear, right? And Mm -hmm. the whole use of that term makes me crazy sometimes. But so to be specific, they wanted to write off working class folks in general and the white working class folks specifically. They they said it doesn't matter anymore after the 2008 win because demography is destiny. They've done all these numbers. The millennials are coming. The millennials are much more mixed race. They're really tolerant towards immigrants. They have these much better attitudes about the world than their elders, you know, generations. And so all we have to do is get them voting. And they, and they, they literally sort of made a decision to write off the core institution that has actually been fundamentally helping Democrats win since the 1930s, which is the trade union movement. There has been no other actual institutional power source for the Democratic Party ever, except for, A, the black vote, like as a, like, peep, the black, the African-American vote in this country has been like 94% consistent, and it's extraordinary. And have they done anything for black people for like the last 35 years or so? No, right? They've taken away most of the programs that, that folks uh, have been relying on. Then you look at the union sector. They just wrote off the union sector and thought, demography is destiny. We're really good at polling now. What the Obama win in 2008 taught them, this is what they were saying to themselves, what we now know, which is so wrong, is that all we have to do is sort of like, you know, outvote them because we've got the vote. And one, Obama was, I, I'm not sure who said this, so I, I'm missing quoting someone, but it was, it was good a few weeks ago I heard it on the radio, and it might have been Axelrod, who I don't tend to agree with generally, but saying like Obama was a once in 50 years candidate because of how positive he was. He had no stained record. He had no, there was nothing you could really look at behind him. Um, people did want to believe his message about a really few, you know, like he raised people's expectations that society would be great again in a way that, but he did it, he did it in a positive way in a way that Trump just did it really cynically and divisively. But, you know, so they, they mistook him, a person for a party strategy. And it was frankly idiotic. And for those of us who are paying careful attention to how come states that used to vote Democratic keep going trifecta red, and by trifecta red, I mean the governor's mansion, yep. the assembly, and the state senate. Florida. Whatever the, whatever the I live in Florida. That's a Florida, Florida, yeah. as I call it. Yep, that's what but they did again here. And we have, I, I would say, close to, if not 50% more registered Democrats than Republicans in this state. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And so the question is, what's wrong? And part of what I'm trying to argue in the new book is, what's wrong is that we've stopped seriously engaging in what I call real organizing or deep organizing. For most of the last 20 years in the trade union sector, 
I think that we made some really big mistakes. I came in on a wave of folks who wanted to rebuild the American labor movement in 1995 when we had the first contested election at the what's sort of the National Labor Confederation, the AFL-CIO. Um, big change was coming, we thought. Um, and I, I'm, I, I, that's what I'm analyzing in the book. The last 20 years in the trade union movement among a set of unions that I, that I argue in the book are the set of unions that are still trying versus a bunch of unions who have just like accepted their demise. I'm not, I'm not bothering talking about that right now. I, although I'm worried about the working class that's, a, that's tied to them. But there's a set of unions, let's say about a 10, who have been for about 20 years, and I've been working with all of them, um, who have been sort of trying. And what I'm arguing is that we shifted in some ways because of influence in the Democratic Party, frankly, um, and the ties that can be too close. There was a shift in the trade union movement that almost mirrored the Democratic Party. But what's ironic is it was leadership of the trade unions, right, where they sort of like they gave up having confidence in their own rank and file. They gave up the idea that we had to go out and do um, really serious political education and really serious deep organizing. And they shifted to what I call a mobilizing model, uh, to a PR-driven, pollster-perfected messages, almost taking a page from the demography of destiny idea that if we just wait out this rough period, you know, we'll have enough young people who sort of are just better, just better, you know, mm-hmm. like as if there's no contested space out there with Fox News and the rest of the world for their hearts and minds. And that things will just get better, as if it's some weird destiny. When I think the history of the working class movement in this country, by which I mean also the anti-racist, you know, pro-feminist, at the height of the best of the union work in this country, the union movement has always meant a race, class, um, and gender approach to the work. The, the winning strategies, those of us who still win really hard-fought elections in the union movement, we have to confront race and gender all the time. You don't run from it. You don't hide from it. You have to go straight at it because... You know, people are not born in a bubble in this country. They're born mm-hmm. to Fox News, for God's sakes, right? So th- there's a real conversation that we have to have. It's not talking at. It's not messaging at. It's not advertising at. It's old-fashioned conversations through face-to-face organizing. And I don't think there's any way to avoid it. And we've sort of abandoned the whole idea that that's what we have to do to rebuild a strong working-class movement. And I think we're going to keep getting our asses kicked until we figure out that the basis in a capitalist economy is the working class. And how do we do that is sort of the subject of, of my new book. Well, great. And the new book, as, as you mentioned before, is No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. Uh, Jane McAlevey, thank you so much. What a great conversation this was. I hope we can continue at other times because uh, <laughs> there's a lot going on. The book is No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. I'll put a link on my blog at NicoleSandler.com. We'll have it up at the Brad blog, bradblog.com as well. Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break and come back on the other side with Jason Leopold of Vice News, dubbed by the government the FOIA terrorist. And yeah, he's got some big FOIA terrorism cooking. That's next on the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help out however you can. That's bradblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. 
Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of the Nicole Sandler Show, filling in once again for Brad and Desi. And it's always my great honor to talk with Jason Leopold. Jason is not only a senior investigative reporter for Vice News, he's also got the distinction of being dubbed by our government the FOIA terrorist. That's because Jason uses the FOIA tools better than anyone else doing it today. Now, a few weeks before the election, Jason had told me, stand by, we've got some earth-shattering information coming. But it never came. Yes, they had filed some expedited FOIA requests, got no response, and now they're taking it to the next level. Jason Leopold was actually on my program, The Nicole Sandler Show, on Friday at NicoleSandler.com. You can go there and download the entire interview. I'm going to share with you a few minutes of it here today on the broadcast. We'll start with where Jason explained exactly what happened, what they were waiting for uh, from the government that never came. What we had asked for, and when I say we, that's uh, Ryan Shapiro. Uh, he's a uh, national security researcher uh, and a doctoral student at MIT. I often file Freedom of Information Act lawsuits um, with him jointly. And we knew, I got a tip one, that the FBI was looking at, you know, some incendiary comments that Trump made on the campaign trail over the summer. And in addition to that, we knew that the Secret Service was looking at some of the statements, or at least one of the statements that Trump made when he called upon Second Amendment people to uh, perhaps uh, deal with Hillary Clinton if she were to become president. Oh, yeah, I remember and, and that. Got its point. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, and yes, we also looked for the uh, tax audits of uh, Trump's uh, uh, tax returns over the past uh, decade. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act request uh, for, you know, essentially we wanted to find out whether Secret Service and the FBI, uh, I'll leave the IRS aside for now, but we wanted to find out were they investigating him? Were they looking at anything? And essentially we wanted two things before the election. We wanted one, that we wanted them to say, well, no, they, ha- they don't have any documents uh, and nothing exists. Or if they did have documents and were not able to release it, um, they would likely be unable to release it because it would mean that they were investigating. So we wanted a letter uh, at the very least saying as much because then we could report uh, that, look, you know, the FBI is looking into this. So we filed a lawsuit immediately. We, you know, we asked for expedited processing, arguing that there was an urgency to inform the public uh, about whether or not Trump was being investigated, whether the FBI or, or the Secret Service uh, was looking into this. And yes, we believe that uh, you know we, we uh, uh, could have obtained this and should have. I should say, I rather the, instead of could have, I should say I should say should have obtained this before the election. Uh, and uh, we we made these arguments to the Justice Department attorneys who represent the government. They actually said to us, "We're aware that there's an election." Well, nothing came before the election. <laughs> nothing came. And and mind you, obviously everyone you know knows this that uh, James Comey you know sent a letter to Congress saying that hey, there's some emails, 
there may be, uh, or, or these emails may be relevant to what we were looking at with regard to Hillary Clinton. We don't, uh, he didn't even say we don't know yet, but the fact is, is that the FBI didn't even know if they were relevant. They just knew that they had some emails and that they might be relevant. Um, so we sh- the letter that we ultimately received 10 days after the election uh, was a letter from the FBI. We're still waiting on Secret Service, mind you. Unreal. We received a letter from the FBI, and it's known as a Glomar response. Okay, and a Glomar response, named after the Glomar destroyer, when uh, reporters were actually trying to find out about this CIA ship, and uh, the CIA said they can neither confirm nor deny you know, that it exists. And so basically what we got from the FBI was a letter saying that they can neither confirm nor deny that they have records, and if they do, it's part of an investigative file. Um, it, it essentially, and, and it's very, very, very rare uh, for the FBI to issue a Glomar. And I articulated that in a story that I published about this letter. So if anyone's interested in it, you know, they can go check out the story and get some background on it. But this is a letter that really uh, 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 suggests, strongly suggests, I'm not going to say, you know, definitely, but I'm going to say strongly suggest that the FBI has some sort of file and was looking at something with regard to Trump um, at the same time that Comey sent this letter about Hillary Clinton. Now, if, if we received this letter before the election, you can be sure, Nicole, that I would have reported it the same exact oh, way yeah. that I reported this story, yep. and it would have been huge news. We were the only news organization that sued the FBI for this type of material. Uh, that, you know, records that we wanted that would have shown, hey, you know, not just Hillary Clinton, there's, there's something going on here with Donald Trump and the FBI is looking into it. And, and, and mind you that in addition to the Second Amendment people, one of the comments that we asked, uh, one, one of the comments that was part of our FOIA lawsuit uh, that we heard that the FBI was looking into, and I filed this in September, this lawsuit, uh, was when Trump said in July, uh, when he called upon Russia to essentially hack Hillary Clinton's yep. emails or, or to find Hillary Clinton's missing you know, emails. 30,000 uh, emails. Comment, yep. And that comment is now at the center all over again of the, uh, of the discussions uh, you know, revolving around Russia and Russia influence and, and uh, whether or not they played a role in the election. So, Yeah, in fact, uh, Jason, because I, I'm yeah. like a Girl Scout, always prepared. This is what he said. It was July 27th. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. By our press. Yeah. And, and now, of course, you know, the, the Trump campaign is saying, well, well, he didn't even know anything about this. Why, or or the, 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 the Trump uh, tweeted out uh, yesterday morning um, something about, um, um, uh, oh, God. Now I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it here. Hold on. I've got that right here, too. He tweeted out, are we, t- uh, uh, are we talking about... 
the same cyber attack where it was yeah. revealed that head of the DNC illegally gave Hillary the questions to the debate. Of course, that came this morning after yesterday um, when he wrote, he tweeted, what? if Russia or some other entity was hacking, why did the White House wait so long? Why did they only complain after Hillary lost? So yesterday he was acting like he never heard anything and he's blaming the White House. Today he's admitting it. Yeah, of course I knew all along. Yeah, let me also just uh, stop you for a moment, if I okay. may, Nicole, there. Anytime. Um, because you, 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 you were reading or, or, or quoting Trump's tweet. Yes. Um, where he said the DNC illegally, uh-huh. illegally, uh-huh. right? Yes, he this did. This is really important, for, for certainly for your listeners, for everyone to know. There is nothing illegal. <laughs> there's certainly something ethical, but... There's nothing illegal. This, this is the president-elect who just made something up. And probably half the country uh, uh, believes now that it's illegal because he said it was. You, the giving the Donna Brazile giving a, a question to Hillary Clinton, that is not illegal. Maybe immoral, but not illegal. illegal. What law is he talking about? What's illegal? No, I've, no, I've never, I don't know. Uh, I've never not, seen any law. Of. All right. Um, so that's really important because... You know, we're, 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 we're dealing with a president-elect, and an incoming administration that doesn't care about the truth, facts, or anything, and just says whatever it is that, that they will say. That's so dangerous because, um, as we saw in Washington, D.C., right, in this Pizzagate yeah. uh, oh controversy, uh, that, you know, Somebody believed a, a, that, that uh, what, what uh, uh, Trump and his uh, uh, cohorts, or at least rather um, his, his supporters, were, were uh, promoting this conspiracy theory to be true. Showed right. up with a, uh, an assault rifle. And, and, and honestly, it's, it's really amazing that no one was killed. And, and that's, the, that, that's what's at stake here, I actually believe. You know, so for Trump to go out and, and tweet to his 17-plus million followers that something was illegal, yeah, you probably can be sure that some of those folks are, are thinking, oh, man, so, you know, look, you know, uh, the, the DNC broke the law. Yeah. There's no law broke. Right. It was okay. that, that, and but, that, but I'm sorry to, to digress out. into that. Yeah, yeah, I just I'm... wanted to note that that's, that's important. It is important. Um, All this stuff is important. So, Jason Leopold, back to, uh, you know, they, they, when, when we say they, it's a fo- who do you who do you send the FOIA requests to? Do they go to the FBI? Do they go to the yes. FOIA department? They go, what? they go to the FBI, okay. and then the FBI has to process it. And, you know, essentially, like I said, we asked for, you know, we asked for expedited processing. Look, the, the election was just a, a couple of months away. Mm-hmm. But... We asked for expedited processing. The FBI didn't respond. Ten days later, we sued the FBI. And so there was this window where the FBI could have responded and should have responded, Nicole. That letter that I received, we should have had that in hand before the election. And as I noted, that letter, which is posted with my story, uh, two letters that are posted with my story because it's based on two comments, that would have been huge news. It would have been all over the place. It would have raised questions about... Hey, let's hold on a second here. What FBI? What are you doing? Yeah, Why are you and, and actually, this way? President Obama should have been more involved. I mean, he's saying, "Oh, I wanted to uh, keep the appearance of fairness." Well, nonsense, because this wasn't fair uh, airing on Trump's side. So what? That's so right. he got to keep his appearance, his hands clean. Meanwhile, we've got Donald Trump coming in as president for four years. 
I, I, right. I can't think of anything more catastrophic. So now it's post-election. You still got no reasonable no response, document. no yeah. documents. And so you and Ryan but Shapiro. But it's not over. Right. It's not over. No. So you, uh, earlier this week, you filed another lawsuit, didn't you? Yes, um, we did. And, and and just to go back to this letter that we received. Okay. So that, mm-hmm. that part isn't over either. Okay. okay? Oh. And, and what's going to happen with that is we're going to litigate it. Or Jeffrey Light, who is. You know, my FOIA attorney, right. and it's amazing, and has had more success buying, you know, documents out of the FBI and other government agencies over the years uh, than anyone. He'll litigate that, and, and, and essentially he'll, you know, make arguments as to why this is a, a, a wrong response. So that part's not over. You know, stay tuned for that. Ryan and I filed another lawsuit this week against the FBI. And, and essentially what we want, uh, we're, we're looking for a wide range of documents, uh, a wide range of documents about what was taking place behind the scenes within the FBI in the lead up to the election and even in the aftermath with regard to their investigations into the Clinton Foundation. And what, why we want that is because a lot of that has the revelations behind that were leaked to reporters. Okay, so somebody at the FBI was leaking, and we want to gain insight into that and find out why they were doing that. In addition to that, we've asked for pretty much everything they have, and you know, with regard to Trump, we want to find out about if you recall this odd tweet that the FBI's records vault, its its online FOIA portal, uh, tweeted out about ten days before the election, a Twitter account that lay dormant for. Uh, a year suddenly tweeted out, hey, we've got some records here on uh, on Mark Rich, who uh, this was a controversial pardon. From, uh, that, Bill Clinton, uh, right at the end of the last days. Right. So we want that. We want records, what they, you know, what they have on Breitbart, Steve Bannon. Yeah. We want to find out everything. And Ryan and I are aggressively, aggressively pursuing these records in order to, so I can put together a forensic sort of, analysis, narrative about what was taking place at this agency, at this bureau. What were they doing? Why were they doing it? What's happening behind the scenes? And at this point, I actually don't know what they have, what they will release, but I can tell you that anything, Nicole, will be newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Even if we get 100 pages and they're, and they're completely redacted, just the redactions will be newsworthy, you know? Because it will raise questions, important questions about, you know, what's going on here. And, you know, in the story that I put together a couple of weeks ago about the, the other FBI response that I received, you know, I spoke to Elijah Cummings. And Elijah Cummings, prior to the election, he was very, very outspoken and vocal about the fact that, look, you know, he, he, he's the top Democrat on the House Government Affairs Committee, uh, Oversight Committee. And, and he said before the election, look, you know, it's crucial that if the FBI is going to play this game, they've got to sort of level the playing field. Are they looking at anything with regard to Trump? They need to, you know, they need to let the people know. And, you know, so he was very vocal about that and, and the response that we received. So, you know, I do believe that at this point, you know, what's, what's really important is I don't want to quote anonymous sources, Nicole, because it's very clear that folks right now, there's an, somebody, people have an agenda. Right, and right? there's no reason and, to, right? And you can, you've, you've been screwed by anonymous sources. And again, right now, uh, uh, there have to be people who know what's going on, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that's why, you know, it's really important. 
you know, look, I feel that once we get some records, some documents, get some information, that we can then take that to perhaps the people that are speaking anonymously who will speak openly. But of course there are people who know what's going on. There's certainly people in congressional committees that have been briefed that, that know what's going on, and they're likely the ones that are leaking to, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and, and others. You know, for me, I, I kind of want to see that, you know, that evidence that's, uh, that's out there that they have. And I think that that's where the story is. That's Jason Leopold of Vice News, the government dubbed FOIA terrorist, doing amazing work. You can hear that entire interview by coming over to NicoleSandler.com. It was Friday, December 16th show. You can just go to our uh, Nicole's blog and you can download it. Listen to your heart's content. All right. I think we have time for one more maybe two more questions from President Obama's final press conference of the year. This is part of what I meant when I, when I said that we've got to think about what's happening to our political culture here. The Russians can't change us or significantly weaken us. They are a smaller country. They are a weaker country. Their economy doesn't produce anything that anybody wants to buy except oil and gas and arms. They don't innovate. But they can impact us if we lose track of who we are. They can impact us if we abandon our values. Mr. Putin can weaken us just like he's trying to weaken Europe if we start buying into notions that it's okay to intimidate the press. What? Or lock up dissidents. What? Or discriminate against people because of their faith what they look like. Okay, you just heard what I heard, right? Intimidate the press? Uh, No, that's not happening, Donald Trump. Uh, Lock up dissidents? Can you say Don Siegelman, President Obama, pardon Don Siegelman and release him from prison before you leave office? If there's one more thing you do, please. And discriminate against people for their faith or how they look? Uh, Have you met our next president? All right. Sorry, uh, President Obama. That that really didn't um, work. How about how about another one? You've started to see certain folks in the Republican Party and Republican voters suddenly finding a government and individuals who stand contrary to everything that we stand for as being okay because that's how much we dislike Democrats. I mean, think about it. Some of the people who historically have been very critical of me for engaging with the Russians and having conversations with them. Also endorsed the president-elect, even as he was saying that we should stop sanctioning Russia and being tough on them and work together with them against our common enemies. It was very complimentary of Mr. Putin personally. That wasn't news. The president-elect during the campaign said so. And some folks who had made a career out of being anti-Russian didn't say anything about it. And then after the election, suddenly they're asking, oh, why didn't you tell us that uh, maybe the Russians were trying to help our candidate? Heads exploding. Come on. There there was a survey, some of you saw, where, now this is just one poll, but pretty credible source, 37% of Republican voters (coughs) approve of Putin. Over a third of Republican voters approve of Vladimir Putin, the former head of the KGB. Ronald Reagan would roll over in his grave. Yeah, and I think lots of other Americans are joining them. 
And with that, we're done for the day. Thank you for being with me. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com in for Brad and Desi at the Bradcast. Until next time, stay safe.